you, Ruth. Good morning. <laughs> this is different, isn't it? This kind of, as you'll start to notice, this kind of feels like a tent revival. Just saying. And if it's a kind of a Baptist tent revival, that means you all need to talk back to the preacher. So if you hear something that you like, you say amen, all right? So we're going to practice. Let's pretend I said something you like. Amen. All right, let's say something I didn't like. This is what you do. You go, oh. All right, that's good. All right, that's good. We got this. That's fantastic. Just so you guys know, if you go out those doors, there's restrooms in the children's building, just in case anyone needs to use the restroom. All right. We're going to be spending our time today starting off this new series called Live by the Spirit as we walk through today, in particular, the, the verses that Ruth read. Much of what we do at COV is to really do what we're going to teach today. It's to help people grow to look more like Jesus. And over the past many years, there's been a stirring in many of us about this theological term that can feel mystical. It's known as sanctification. For some of us, we don't really know what that word means, but we've actually talked a lot about it. You've heard it if you've been here before. We talk a lot about this term, but mostly when we talk about it, we say things like Christ-likeness or growing to look more like Jesus, or spiritual growth. These are things that lend themselves to sanctification. All of these terms are this idea that once we are justified, once we are saved, once we become a Christian, that there is this progressive effect, this byproduct of one's salvation and justification, and it's known as sanctification. Honestly, for me, this, the reason that this term and theological explanation is so important stems from what I've experienced over the past many years in ministry. I was and am an evangelist. And when you hear evangelist, do some of you kind of think about the guy on the street corner with the sign? Huh? You can be honest. Maybe, maybe the guy or the gal who needs $40 million for a jet who needs to have that so they can travel the world in comfort to preach the gospel to those who need to hear it. See, these are the ideas that are conjured up when we hear the term evangelist. But when I think of an evangelist, it's one who proclaims and equips. It's one who proclaims the gospel that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He's one who points people to the perfect life lived by Jesus, the death on the cross, the resurrection from the dead. But I'm also, and anyone who is a true biblical evangelist, is an equipper. There's someone that are equipping others, not just to share their faith, but to grow in their Christ likeness. But here's the great news. Each of us, if we have the Spirit of God in us, have the opportunity to equip others to grow, to look more like Jesus. I still do share the gospel. And back in the day, I was sharing it so frequently in so many different places that individuals would hear me share it individually, maybe at a school. And then I started to get invited to preach at churches and at organizations and tell people about what Jesus had done for me. And as a pastor of this church, I still get to share the gospel, but I also want to equip you to know that it's not just something that you live through, the gospel that Christ did for you, which you can do for yourself. It's also the fact that you need to equip others to walk in their sanctification. What I've noticed over many years in the faith and being someone who's proclaimed the gospel is I have seen, and this is not to speak highly of me, it's God, but I've seen thousands of people accept Jesus. And if you're on podcast, I did the bunny ears. Accept Jesus. But unfortunately, only hundreds have really followed him. 
And I've noticed this, that over time, people would hear about Jesus, they would say yes to Jesus, but then, like many people, they would come down from the spiritual mountain, they'd come down from this reaction of saying, yay, Jesus, and all of a sudden, they'd stop following him. And because of this, it's created a skepticism in me. It started to overtake me. It started to help me understand that a lot of people would get excited, but then they'd walk away from it. See, people get serious about Jesus, but as soon as Jesus asks them to do something that's a little harder than just kind of come to church and maybe drop a tip in the offering, it's a little bit too difficult for some because they haven't really said yes to the true Christ. And even though my attitude of being skeptical is a little cynical, it is also warranted based on the vast majority and large percentage of individuals that I've seen who wanted to belong to something, but they didn't want to belong to someone. And as I've worked in and preached in many different churches all over the Bay Area and and beyond that, I've realized the absolute need that the church of Jesus Christ needs to have on focusing on spiritual growth, focusing on helping people put into action the truth of God Because far too much Christian ministry is just to get people into a room. It's to get them to get excited about an event rather than who Christ is. So over the next many weeks, about nine weeks, we want to give us an in-depth explanation, proclamation, and we're going to beg the Holy Spirit to illuminate from the scriptures what God does when he adopts children into his family. But here's the one thing I want to say to each of you. I don't want us to be satisfied with just being justified. Because God can do a work in us and grow us to look more like Christ. So we're going to talk about fruit. We're familiar, many of us have heard of the fruit of the Spirit. But we need to understand that fruit in the Bible represents, in this context in which we're going to teach, it represents some type of evidence. It represents the fact that when you are in Christ, you start to grow. And alive things grow and dead things don't. Alive things grow, and good, good trees or good things that are healthy produce healthy fruit, but unhealthy trees produce unhealthy or bad fruit. So when we say fruit, we are saying that there is an evidence to one's salvation. And I know for some of us, we're like, ooh, that, that seems kind of, uh, there's an evidence? Yes, there's an evidence, biblically. There's an evidence to one's redemption. There's an evidence that actually proves that when someone has been made alive by God, that other people can actually see it and decipher it. So today, we're going to embark on that half part of chapter 5 of Galatians 5, where Paul speaks to the church in Galatia about some, and unfortunately, many of the people in Galatia were kind of missing the gospel, justified through faith. They were missing it for moral reconstruction. Just clean yourself up. Make yourself look better, rather than what God can do in someone's life. So the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the active person of God that the Lord sent after Jesus ascended to heaven. Now, here's the thing with the Holy Spirit. Some of us don't understand him, and we're afraid of him, okay? We're afraid of the Holy Spirit, and because we're afraid of him and we don't understand him, we ignore him. But my hope is to glorify our God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the most important things we can know about the Holy Spirit is who he is and what he does. He is the seal. He is the deposit. He is the proof that you are included in Christ. So you don't have to turn there unless you're quick, but up on the screen we're going to have Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we walked through this book earlier on last year. We walked through the book of Ephesians, and Paul, the same author who writes the book of Galatians, writes the book of Ephesians, and he says it this way, and you also were included in Christ. 
when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with the seal, not, oh, 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 not that seal, the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit can often be mystified, can he? In fact, unfortunately, there are churches that try to cash in on misunderstandings of the Holy Spirit. And so when I speak of the Holy Spirit, I'll also call him the Spirit of God, the comforter, the healer. And I want us as a body to not be afraid of the Holy Spirit. And if just that comment makes you uneasy, buckle up. Because I want us as a church to be able to embrace the Holy Spirit, to trust the Holy Spirit, to hear the Holy Spirit's language. But here's a spoiler. You ready? You want to know what the Holy Spirit says? This. And so we need to get back to understanding that the Holy Spirit speaks through the Word. He also speaks through other believers to confirm things, but he never contradicts what the Word of God has to say. So when you start to come up with new revelation, be careful. Actually, shut up. That's a better term. Yeah. <clears throat> And I want us to be someone who embraces the Spirit of God. I want us to be able to lean into him as the Spirit who is given to those who have repented, those who have changed direction, those who have stopped living their life the way they want to live but have made Christ their Lord. The Holy Spirit is a gift that is received when we trust Jesus as our justification. So you want to know how you get the Holy Spirit? You repent. You say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. You are my God, and I'm willing to follow you. And because of God's grace, he gives you his spirit to reside in you. Many wonder what they must do to attain the Holy Spirit. That's one of something we see in Scripture. Some think that they have to be good enough. If I just clean myself up, if I'm just a nice enough person, if I just do these things well enough, then maybe God will include me. Maybe he'll give me his spirit. No. Some others, like in the book of Acts chapter 8, think that they can purchase the Holy Spirit, like Simon the sorcerer. No. But the Spirit of God is a gift given to those who are God's children through the repenting and turning away of their sin and turning to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But let me say this nicely. You will not turn from your sin perfectly. Do you hear me? You just never will. And here's the thing with the Holy Spirit. A lot of times we will sing songs, and I just know how a lot of us are. I'm just going to call it out. It probably may offend you, but some of us don't sing songs because we see certain words and we go, I don't agree with that. Now, if it's doctrine and it's against what the Bible says, I agree. But sometimes we don't understand what the definitions are. One of the things we often talk about, and I see in a lot of different worship songs, and I hear people say, is, Holy Spirit, I want you to fill this place. I want you to fill me. Now, here's the thing. The word in Hebrew for fill meant dominate. So we think, like, the Holy Spirit gets poured out. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit dominates. And you, as a believer, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sins, you receive the Holy Spirit. When you receive the Holy Spirit, it's crazy. You have a will. You guys know that, right? Yeah, your will messes you up pretty bad, if it's like mine. And your will will squelch the Holy Spirit. You will try to do things your own way, and you will squelch the Holy Spirit. So you won't be dominated. You won't be filled by him. You won't be dominated by the Spirit. Because of your will, you will squelch him. And if you do it enough, you actually eventually grieve the Holy Spirit because you refuse to do what the Word of God has to say. 
So we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, what Ruth read, and it is a book written by God through the hands of Paul the Apostle, who, like the letter written to the church in Rome, is a letter to defend the idea of justified by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. So here we go, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean like he had a lot of brothers and sisters, it was believers. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. That's a great verse. That's great. I think I'm done. Let's pray. That's like really good. But Paul is proclaiming to the Galatian believers who are part of the church, those who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, they are justified by Christ alone. Those who are included in Christ, these brothers and sisters, they're free. They're free from the power that sin had over them. You know what sin leads to? It leads to death, and they were free from that, both practically and eternally. It is through Christ that we can practically flee from sin, because in Christ we are gifted the Holy Spirit who leads us towards, check it, holiness. See what God did there? Holy Spirit. Really, it's pneuma. It's spirit is what the name of the Holy Spirit is, but we attach holy to it because the Spirit makes us holy when we lean into him, when we obey what the Word of God has to say. And so sin no longer identifies those of us who have trusted Christ. We are no longer identified by our sin because we have been made a new creation. We're not a better version. We didn't update our iOS. We are brand new in Christ. And because of freedom, we do not need to indulge the flesh. But if you're like me, you do. For many, because of freedom, unfortunately, it also leads to liberty of the flesh. But I think we all need to understand that being God's children does not just, it doesn't mean we just don't do bad things. That's a very religious perspective of what Christianity is. Well, I just don't do bad things. I sit on my hands and I never do anything wrong. But being a Christian actually means you do the good things that God predetermined for you to do. That he has things for you to do that he gave you his spirit so you would walk in them. I've said this before, but I want you to hear it. Many don't care what is true. They care what works. And biblical Christianity not only is true, it works. Did anyone catch the pun? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you'll you'll take it home with you. And we need to stop thinking that our Christianity is just about trying to stop doing anything wrong. We must replace bad habits with God's commands and disciplines. We must replace bad habits with God's commands and disciplines. And God gave us this ability by not just saving us from hell, but saving us to the kingdom bringing us into the kingdom of God. So uh, you guys may or may not know my son, little mini-me, Boston Riley. And Boston's walking around right now with a green cast because he broke his arm because he's a boy. (laughs) And we didn't even know it was broken because we couldn't even tell. Like, he didn't really whine about it. He was just like, yeah, it kind of hurts. And then we tried to make him pick up things, and he's like, you know, so sad. So we take him... Sorry, podcast, you didn't get that. So we take him to the hospital. Aaron takes him to the hospital, and they put a cast on him, and he's got this little green cast, and it's up here. So it's not here, praise God, but it's up here, and it's, it's healing and everything, except he doesn't realize, like, it's really broken because he's running around like everything's fine. But back in the day, 
when he was much younger. I remember sitting in my office, and I've, I think I may have told this story before, I, and I always tell this story to brand new parents and, and people who are about to have kids. A lot of times when a kid wants to play with something we don't want them to play with, here is Bad Parenting 101. You ready? Yeah, all the parents just leaned in. Bad Parenting 101. There's something you don't want them to touch. So you go, don't touch that. And you take it and you put it somewhere else. What do you think my son does when I do that? He, he goes and tries to get it, right? I put it on top of a bookshelf. If I did that, I put it on top of a bookshelf. He'd be climbing up that bookshelf looking to break his other arm, right? And he would try to get to it. He would try to take it. That is not what God does. In this analogy, it's not, don't touch that. I'm putting it away. You're not allowed to touch it. What does he do? He gives us something better. He gives us his spirit. He takes away the iPad. He puts it away so it's not in your peripherals. And he gives you something better to play with. Better to be led by, really. I don't want to lower the magnificence of the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. God gave us his spirit so we would be led by him. Verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. All right, before I read it, I know it's up there. You can read ahead, but I love how Paul is just like, if people are listening, it's like for the entire law, like all 636 laws in the Old Testament, the entire law is keeping with this one command. So whatever he says, it's got to be a doozy, right? It's got to be a big one. What does he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. We hear this all the time, and we are so, our heart is so hardened to this idea. We've heard it so much. Love your neighbor as yourself. We think golden rule. We think treat others the way we want to be treated. But see, here's the thing. The ethics, you guys know what ethics are? The ethics of the Old Testament law are exactly the same as the New Testament gospel. They're the same. From the Old Testament to the New, the application is the same in both. And, e- and even better is now we start to understand that those who truly love God do this. Those who truly love God love their neighbor. Oh, he just raised the bar. Because it's easy to feel like we love God, right? And be devoted and come to church and, and not do bad things. But he says, no, it's not just a sin of commission I'm pulling out of you. I want to pull out the sin of omission which means you are willing to do something. You are willing to care for other people. So, so hear me, this may sting a little. If treating others as less than yourself is your general response to people, it is impossible to justify to God that you love him. Let me read that again. If treating others as less than yourself is your general response to people, It is impossible to justify to God that you love him. No matter how much scripture you read, no matter how often you come to church, no matter how devoted you are in prayer, those are not what God tells us that those who have been redeemed actually do. You can do those in your own strength. In order to love others the way God commands, it requires the spirit of God illuminating the word of God to compel us towards obedience. So it requires something of us. It requires something of us. And here's what I want you to get. This evidence, it is the fruit of one who has been redeemed. It is the fruit of one who has been redeemed. It is someone who obeys, someone who is growing. Verse 15, if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Well, wow. 
doesn't this kind of seem a bit National Geographic? Anyone? Anyone like go there? Like there are these two predator animals in the wild biting and devouring one another. But spiritually, if we don't love others, but we gossip and we argue and we fight, we may be just proving that we've never been redeemed. We've never been restored. We've never been regenerate. And as a follower of Jesus, church, we can and do have the power to serve one another, to put other needs before our own, to care for others' spiritual growth and physical well-being. So let me, let me state this. This may be someone's takeaway. I want to say this to you directly. Selfishness is in direct conflict with the gospel. Do you hear what I'm saying? Selfishness is in direct conflict. You are combating the gospel, the good news of what Jesus came to do. Verse 16. So I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So Paul's essentially kind of using my iPad analogy. He's saying if you walk by the Spirit, you won't be gratifying the desires of the flesh. It's not enough to just not commit the sin of commission. It's not enough to just not do something bad. But in order to not commit the sin of omission, to not do what you ought to do, you must walk by the Spirit of God. Lean into the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit leads you to obedience through the Word of God, it leads to spiritual growth. So you want to know how you grow? You obey what God has to say through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You want to grow? You do what God says. So, okay, you want to know if you're saved? You want to know if you have a relationship with God? It's not about any outward appearance or work. It's actually about your disposition towards God. That's the, that's the precursor. That's, how, that's the evidence. Do you cringe when you hear me say, you must obey God's word? Do you cringe? Because if you cringe, it might be because you don't understand how beautiful it is that God would give us a law. Or do you want with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind to do what he says? See, I don't listen to God as much as I should. And I assume I'm not the only one in this room. But I want to. I want to do what he says. I want to trust him. But when I don't do what he says, that doesn't mean I lose my salvation. I can't lose a gift that God gave me. It was a gift. But I want to do what he says. I want to look more like Jesus. I want to live by faith. I want to be led by the Spirit. But even Paul, the apostle, who's in a lot of ways one of the coolest guys in the New Testament. He's like the Rambo of apostles. That's the wrong culture right there. Anyway, Paul understood this. He understood the inner turmoil of our sin nature combating the Spirit of God and vice versa. So in Romans chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, but it's this great, great verse, and he kind of expounds on this. He says in verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. What? He basically says, I know what I ought to do. I don't do that. I do what I shouldn't do because that's what I want to do, unfortunately. And I can feel Paul's pain here. I can understand, which I'm sure many of you can. I watch some of my actions and my reactions and wonder how I could possibly have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead residing in my soul. I see how I respond to things. I've seen Facebook posts from years ago 
wow, how can the Spirit of God be in me? And it is through this disobedience that I squelch the Spirit of God in me. But then Paul points us towards grace, and we should always point anything where you hear me say, hey, there's this, and things need to change. There's always grace, and Paul always points us to it. In Romans 7, verse 24 and 25, he says, what a wretched man I am. He's not talking about me. He's talking about Paul. Paul, he's talking about himself. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord hallelujah, because I'm messed up. I'm tore up. I do things incorrectly. You do things incorrectly. There are great people in this room, and I would start naming names, but then some of you would be like, why didn't he name me? I don't know. But thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is through Jesus that we are justified. It is through Jesus we are redeemed. It is through Jesus that death has been conquered And he sends us his spirit to war against our human and sinful nature. Praise be to God. Verse 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Let that sit for a second. They are in conflict so you won't do whatever you want. Can I just be real? You want to do the wrong thing. You do. Even with the Spirit of God in you, there is this warring in you. And Paul further addresses the conflict that happens, but we must see this Christian optimistic view that he has. This conflict for the believer is so that we won't do whatever we want. We won't indulge the flesh. We won't just continually do what our flesh considers desirable. I must remind us consistently hey, we're depraved. We're sinful, church. We are. The thoughts and the urges that you and I have are unholy. They're unchristlike. Yet often by grace alone, I don't always just apply what my flesh wants. There are times I actually listen to what God has to say in his word, and I do what he says because the truth is planted in me. But this applies both to the sin of commission doing the things that I shouldn't, but also to the sin of omission to not do what I ought to do. So let me, let me say this to you, and I don't know how this is going to sound, but laziness towards obedience, laziness towards obedience may be the biggest sin in the church of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again, because maybe you didn't get it. Laziness towards obedience, it's not because you don't necessarily want, you're just lazy, Laziness towards obedience may be one of the biggest sins of the church in Jesus Christ. You ever get the feeling that those in the church of God care more about having the right theology than they do about actually doing what God says? I mean, I'm preaching here. I could go have a moment by myself because this is true. But I want us to live by the Spirit. I want us to have a biblical view of the Holy Spirit and of the Son and of the Father, but I also know that living by the Spirit is intertwined with faith and deeds. Faith and deeds. So I'm going to take you to James, Jesus' half-brother. Same mom, different dad. You all get that? Okay. James, chapter 2, the early pastor of the Jerusalem church, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? 
Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Some preach a gospel that it's all about believing the right things. In heaven, there are going to be people that don't have perfect theologies like you. Just so you know. (laughs) Putting that out there. But what I am saying is that if you claim you believe, if you claim you have faith, if you claim Jesus, you you are a representation of Jesus, if you claim you're right, your rightness lacking any action is just lip service and not what our Lord expects from his beloved. Not what our Lord expects from the redeemed. Not what our Lord expects from his church. Galatians 5 verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. (laughs) A lot of us see this statement as not under the law. And for too many of us, we're like, oh, we just focus on that. We don't think about led by the Spirit. We just go, oh, we're not under the law anymore. Yay! We think, oh, the law doesn't apply to us anymore. Some of us think we're above the law that God gave to his people. But laws were given so you would know how perfect God is, not you. The one who kept the law, the one who did not sin, either in commission or omission, that is our God. So you want to please God, church? Don't look to the law that you break. Look to the son who broke his body so you could be redeemed. That's good. That's my takeaway. Verse 19. Oh, this is fun. You guys ready? Everyone's going to kind of... The acts of the flesh are obvious. All right, let's stop there. The acts of the flesh are not hidden. That's another way of saying that. The acts of the flesh are obvious. If you are being led by the flesh, it's obvious. No matter how much you want to try to pretend or change your... uh, or delete your browser, it's obvious. The acts... (laughs) Guys were like, shut up. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Paul, why do you have to say and the like? I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know what he doesn't say? Those who have done these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. He says those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is an ongoing thing. So you want to know if you're included in Christ? Are you living by the Spirit? So much could be said about this list. In fact, when I read it, I kept going guilty, 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 guilty. And I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. Because it's not just if I've done it, it's have I wanted to. But as we look at this list, it points us to the fact that none of us measure up to the perfect one. So don't point fingers. These are behaviors and attitudes that all were produced in all of us before Jesus Christ. But if we trust Jesus, if we trust him at his word, if we live by the spirit who is given to us, we have the capability, church, 
to be able to not live in these actions and attitudes anymore. Not because you tried really hard. <clears throat> Peace. No. <laughs> but because God's given you a spirit. Does it scare you when I read these things? I don't want you to worry about your salvation if you've ever done any of these things. Worry if you're identified by these attitudes. Because that might just mean that you are not dominated by the Spirit because you have not received the gift of Jesus as your sole means of salvation. I'm not interested in trying to scare anyone. I just want us to always assess why we do what we do. Why did you get dressed this morning and come to church? Why do you serve other people? Why do you care about what happens in other people's lives? Why do you read the Bible? Why do you give in the offering? Do we sin because we have to? Or do we sin because we're forgetting that the Spirit of God resides in us? The more I obey, okay, don't miss this. Look at me, look at me. I, if you've experienced this, you'll know what I'm talking about. The more I obey, the easier it is to obey. Anyone? The more I obey, the more I grow. The more I grow, the more I know what situations I tend to get in that cause me to fail, so I stay away from them. That's growth. Verse 22, and then Paul, in a happy-go-lucky song, no, he doesn't sing it, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and now you're all singing it in your heads, church kids, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. There it is again. There is no law against such things. So the fruit of the Spirit has a list of virtues, church, has a list of attitudes, it has a list of behaviors that demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is in us. And these are not works that we do to be saved or sealed. We are not saved by works, we are saved unto works. And works that are from God come from a heart that God has given us. And it starts with your attitude. It starts with your attitude. Are you willing to trust God? Do you do the things you do because you want to please God? Or do you do them because you feel like you have to because other people are watching? So notice these nine virtues. There's nine of them. And Paul does not call it the fruits of the Spirit. All right? So I'm going to tease you every time you say fruits from now on because I'm preaching this. These are not the fruits of the Spirit. It is not plural. It is singular. And even though it's really easy to make that mistake, because it sounds right, doesn't it? The fruits of the Spirit, you know, love, peace, joy, it sounds right. These, are the, these sound like the fruits that the Spirit produces. The problem with the fruits of the Spirit is that the fruit of the Spirit is holistic. You can't grow in love and not grow in self-control if it's God. Did you hear that part? You can't be like, oh, I'm killing it at love, but man, I have no self-control. What? Shut up. The fruit of the Spirit is holistic. You do not grow in love and not progress in the other parts of the virtues. Now, some you may grow faster in. And it is these nine virtues that are evidence that God is growing us. The, we may learn to be more loving but without the holistic fruit, singular, of the Spirit being produced in us, we may be growing, but not necessarily to look more like Jesus. 
there's a lot of humanitarians that could care less about the gospel. So today, we look at the first virtue. All of that, all, all 36 minutes, that was the setup for the first virtue. You ready? All right. The first attitude, the first behavior, the first virtue that Paul points us to is love. Love is so subjective, isn't it? Here's what I want to hear from you. Name some songs with love in the title. Go. All you need is love. What else? Love is a battlefield. Yes. What else? What is love? What? Yeah. All right. Here's the point. Love is so subjective. I can say I love my King Jesus and I love Doritos. It's subjective. It is used and misused when it comes to how we throw this word around, especially in the English language. And I could spend the next 10 minutes, I won't, but I could spend the next 10 minutes giving you a word study on different Hebrew words of love, like my favorite, ahava. Say it with me. Ahava. More spit. Ahava. Thank you. There we go. Ahava. This means a relentless and unconditional type of love. When you're talking about a couple, it means no matter what happens in this relationship, I'm not going anywhere because I ahava her. That's what it means. Or all the different words of love in Greek, like agape or phileo. But instead, I want to point you to the biblical definition for love for others and love for God. So you guys know John 3.16? Anyone? You all do. It's, you know, sign, afro. Yeah. But do you know 1 John 3.16, Bible scholars? Here we go. 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. I love that he ends with truth. Because too much humanitarian work is without the gospel. And he says that you lead with action. You do something, but you do it because you get to obey your God. And love for others, and I don't want you to miss this, love for others requires sacrifice. It might mean sacrifice of your time, sacrifice of your treasure, even sacrifice of your talents. And those who have served over the past few months, maybe to build the sound booth in the sanctuary, Maybe Janet and others who've been painting the lobby this past week. Janet's been in the church more than I have. (laughs) Barbara Simmons, who's been our organist for, ah, it's only 63 years. Abby and many other servants who served Valley Village last week as we poured into Valley Village and we had an awesome bingo night. Like, I'm serious, guys. It was awesome. There have been people that have been faithfully serving and worship and hospitality and women's fellowship and outreach and service ministry within this church, and they are examples that come to mind, but without sacrifice, it's not love, church, because the disciple whom Jesus loved pointed us to the perfect example of what love is, to lay down one's life for another. So love for others requires sacrifice, but love for God, yeah, it requires sacrifice, definitely. You'll never out-sacrifice Jesus, by the way. But love for God is defined in an even deeper way. So 1 John chapter 5, it'll be up here. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. 
This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. It is, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So love for God is demonstrated by obedience. Love for others, sacrifice. Love for God, obedience. So do you obey? That's kind of, I, I preached all that just to ask that one question. Do you obey? If you do, do you do it because you love God? Because if you believe without obedience, you really just believe in a made-up version of God rather than the God of the Bible. But what if, COV, what if we were a church that was identified for, by our sacrificial love for others and for our obedience-driven love for God? What if? Do you think we could be a part of God changing the world? I do. So keep coming back as we dig deeper and deeper into what it looks like when Jesus says that we can grow to look more like him. When Paul teaches in Galatians about what the fruit of the Spirit is and how we grow to not grow in the fruits of the Spirit, but in the fruit of the Spirit as we look more and more like Christ.